You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. I heard a story about five years ago, actually my wife shared it with me, about a little boy and he had some, some health problems and he passed away and his mother decided to donate his vital organs to those who were in need and one such person who was in need was a little girl. She had heart trouble, and so they completed the surgery, and they transplanted, transplanted the heart of that little boy into that, that little girl's body. And after the surgery was complete, the mother of the little girl called the mother of the little boy over and put a stethoscope on her little girl's chest and let the mother of the little boy listen to the beating heart of her son in that little girl's body. So as I start tonight... I want to remind us of Jesus Christ while we're here. And I pray that as I speak tonight that God the Father will hear the beating heart of his son in this body. That I will speak in such a way that he is glorified, that he is praised, that he is honored. And that I will be able to help you whether you're married or not. Because a lot of things that I will share tonight are true for all relationships, not just marriage. But I pray that I will be able to help you glorify God in the way you love your spouse. So to begin... As Barry said, I'm going to talk about how to cultivate your relationship. And and when I speak again in two weeks, I'm going to speak about how to protect your relationship, how to protect your marriage. And there's a biblical basis for this. Um, So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. I'm not always good about naming off the verses, but I'm going to start in the beginning. Uh, Genesis 1.1 says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the darkness from the light. The darkness he called light, the darkness he called night, the light he called day. There was evening, there was morning, day one. On day two, God separated the waters from the waters. He set an expanse in between. On day three, God separated the waters from the dry land, and he brought forth vegetation on the dry land. On day four, five, and six, God filled everything that he created on day one, two, and three. He put the stars and the sun and the moon in place. He put the sea creatures in the sea. He put the birds in the sky. On day six, he created the animals on the earth, and he also created us. That was a good day. It says in verse 27, chapter 1, that, God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. He created us. He says the next verse that he, he blessed us. He blessed them. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. At the end of that chapter, at the end of every day, God said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And at the end of the six days, God said, it is very good. In fact, nothing up to that point was anything but good. When we read in chapter 2, it gives us more detail on exactly what God did in the creation of man. It says in verse 7 that God formed man from the dust of the earth. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a human being. The next verse, verse 8, says that then he planted a garden in the east towards Eden, and he took the man who he had formed and he placed him in the garden. Verse 15 says that he placed him in the garden to cultivate and protect the garden. Verse 18, and this is a big verse because this is the first time that God says there's anything that's not good. And what he says is, it is not good for the man to be alone. It is not good to be lonely. 
so I will make him a helper suitable for him. The helper in that is the Hebrew word ezer, ezer, and that is most often used to describe God himself all throughout the Psalms, where it talks about he is, he is the one who comes to rescue. He is the one who comes to help. It's not that God was saying, I will make him a God for him, but I will make him a helper, a vitally important source of strength in time of need. So God created a helper. He took from Adam and he created that helper, took from him his rib and formed it into woman and brought the woman to him. And Adam woke up and I joked my wife last night, I think this is where breakdancing came, on, came online. Probably trying to impress his, his new wife, talking sweet, doing a little dance, something like that. I don't know what he thought, but he sang a song. He said, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And I think that that was, even as I think about it now, one of the most beautiful things. And I believe that God was pleased in that. He's for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and he will leave, he will cleave to his wife. And they stood naked before God and they were not ashamed. There was no shame. We all know what happens in Genesis 3, that all that was evil was embodied in the serpent and the serpent came to the woman. And the woman saw then after the deception that the tree was good for food, that it was delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and she ate. Verse 6, she gave to her husband also, and he ate. And we know that after that, the next verse, they realized they were naked. They were no longer unashamed. They made clothes for themselves. Then they heard the voice. They heard the sound of the Lord asking them, who told you you were naked? They were afraid. They hid themselves. Shame and fear had entered the world. We know that shortly after that, they had to work. They felt pain in childbirth. There was pain. There was stress. Chapter 4, we know that there was murder. All that was evil came into the world because of the sin that was committed there. So the question I would ask is, what then is the task? If the initial task was to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, cultivate and protect the garden, what do we do now that we don't have a garden? Jesus says in, in John fifteen eight, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And I believe that that is a task for us now is that we glorify God by bearing fruit, not in the garden around us, but in the garden within us. Over Christmas, many probably read in Luke uh, where the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. This is what's going to happen. You're going to conceive in your womb, you'll bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And Mary says, well, how can that be? I'm still a virgin. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the child will be called Son of God. So verse 37 says, nothing is impossible with God. Don't want to skip that verse. Verse 42, Mary goes to the hill country where her cousin is also with child. We know that she has a baby, first name John, middle name V, last name Baptist. She's pregnant with John the Baptist. And it says that when she walks in, that Elizabeth cries out with a loud voice and says, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And what was the fruit of Mary's womb? Jesus. Where did Jesus come from? We know that he was in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him. The word was with God, but the word was conceived in Mary when the Holy Spirit came upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Are you with me? That is what I believe is the fruit of the Spirit. When I talk about cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, it's for all those who don't know Christ to cultivate Christ in them. 
for those who know Christ to cultivate what Paul says is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Cultivate that. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. If you want to build your marriage on Christ, it's got to start with this, with the cultivation of the spiritual fruit. And that is my first point. We start with time. The three, the three sacred hours that I'll hit on, and then also I'm going to go through a number of other things. But the first time that I think is important is that we as individuals spend time with Christ. If I want my marriage to be strong, I want my relationship with my wife to be strong, I have to have a strong relationship with Christ. And so this first sacred hour, I refer to as the cleft of the rock. The cleft of the rock is, um, if you remember in uh, 1 Kings 19, uh, after Mount Carmel, uh, Elijah has come down. He's come down from the city. What What a miracle God showed, his power, how he displayed that up on Mount Carmel. And Elijah comes down from there and Ahab, King Ahab, who's the king of Israel at that time, he has told Jezebel uh, what happened and Jezebel threatens Elijah. And so he's afraid and I don't even understand how that happens, but I know he's a braver man than me, but he was afraid and he ran, he ran to Judah, he ran to Beersheba and he said, Lord, take me, I'm finished. He went out from Beersheba, he went, he, he lay down under a juniper tree, the angel came to him and said, awake and eat and fix for him bread and, and water. And he went back to sleep and the angel woke him up again and said, eat and drink. And he rose and he ate and he drank and then he left and he went to Mount Horeb 40 days. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. When he got there, he went into a cave in the mountain. And many people think that that cave was the same cleft of the rock where Moses cried out, God, show me your glory. Show me your Kabotica glory. But Elijah was in there And he heard the voice of the Lord calling, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And he went forth and behold, the Lord is passing by. There was a strong wind rending the mountain into pieces, but the Lord was not in the wind. There was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then it says, if you have the New American Standard, the King James or the NIV, that then he heard the sound of a gentle blowing, a gentle whisper the still small voice of God. When I get up in the morning at 5 a.m., I go to the cleft of the rock. I don't go to Mount Horeb, I go to my basement. I get on my knees before God and I empty myself out before him. I surrender my life to him. I recommit my life to Christ. And if I want to build my marriage, I want to be a good father, a good husband, a good counselor, whatever role that it is that God would have me play, I surrender my life to Christ in the cleft of the rock. So the first sacred time that I say to build your marriage is first, you get right with God. Don't be looking at your partner and the things around you that are going on. Humble yourself before God. Subject yourself to the will of God in the cleft of the rock. The second thing is is what I refer to as the ORP. This is is the objective rally point. So as, as Barry said earlier, I was in the military. I was an infantryman. And we would do a lot of uh, combat operations and many of the operations that we would do, we would get close to the objective, we would stop, we would drop our heavy rucksacks in an objective rally point, and then from there we would go out and we would conduct our ambush or we would conduct our raid. After the ambush or after the raid was over, we would then return to the ORP. In the ORP, we would consolidate and reorganize who's low on water, who's low on ammo, 
who's been wounded. A lot of times when we were in combat, somebody would be wounded, either tripping or getting hit, or they'd get shot, and they wouldn't even know. They were so amped up on adrenaline that they wouldn't know until their, their ranger buddy looked at them and said, you're bleeding. The ORP for me is my dinner table. It's a time that I spend with my family. We sit there together, and my little girl comes home from school, and I say, how was school today? Was anybody mean to you? Were you wounded? Are you low on water? Are you low on ammo? Let's go throw the Frisbee in the front yard. Another ORP for us is our time before bed when we read a chapter of the Bible together as a family. We pray together as a family. We rally together, we consolidate and reorganize, and we make sure that we're all on track. So the second sacred time to building a strong marriage is an ORP, a place where you can consolidate and reorganize. The third is what I call the golden hour. The first hour of an infant's life, some of y'all may be familiar with this, uh, after that child who's in the womb, who is warm, who is fed, who has oxygen, who has everything that it could ever want or ever need, all of a sudden is birthed into this scary world with all these weird-looking people, all these aliens. Uh, little does it know that that little pink raisin is, is scarier than all of us. We just had a baby. We got another one coming up. Um, so... But that baby's born out and is terrified, it's scared. Everything that it had, everything that it thought was, was, was normal, was real, was safe, is now, is now shaken upside down. So they take that baby and they clean it off, and then they go and they put it on the mother, skin on skin. And that little baby, if it can, it latches onto the mother's breast and begins to feed, has its ear near the heart of the mother, listening to the heartbeat like inside the womb, feels the warmth of the mother's skin on the baby's body, and looks into the mother's eyes, and they have a conversation, a conversation without words. Baby's obviously preverbal, But the baby's looking up at mother saying, will you reach for me? Can I reach for you? Will you help me? Will you feed me? Will you hold me? Will you touch me? And the mother, with her tear-filled eyes, looks down at that baby and says, I will reach for you. I will hold you. I will touch you. I will feed you. I will protect you. That baby falls asleep, safe, attached. When I talk about the, the golden hour for the, for the husband and wife in the evening, as I said earlier, for this reason, a, a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. And our Western European descendants here, we believe that independence is a sign of strength. And I would challenge that and say that's not true at all. I believe that God has wired us to connect. He's made us for relationships. We need other people. That is not a sign of weakness. If anything, that's a sign of strength. That's the way that God made us. And when a man and the woman, the husband and the wife, they come together for this time, this intimate time, I'm not talking about the sexual aspect. I'm talking about just the touching, the being there for each other. It's saying, I will be there for you. You can reach for me and I will reach for you. I will be there for you. So again, the third time to building a strong marriage is the golden hour. So the cleft of the rock, the objective rally point, and the golden hour. Another time I'll throw on here, and this is just in general dating itself. Too many, too many married couples stop dating each other. And that's something that I believe that you must continue doing. The letter to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, it says, that, But I have this against you, verse 4, that you left your first love. What's the answer to that? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent, do the things you did at first. This for me is, is a problem that I see with a lot of the couples that I work with, that they did so many things together, they spent so much time together, they went on so many dates together, they talked so much together, and then they got married. 
and then they had kids. And then they got busy with everything else. We can't forget what brought us together in the first place. And I tell most of the couples that I work with that seven to 10 hours should be a minimal for the time you spend with your wife. And I know that there's probably some bad words going through some people's minds right now. Maybe upset with me, but I'm telling you seven to 10 hours. And ideally we get to the point where it's 14 to 20 hours. And this could be some of this again is the golden hour. Some of this is around the dinner table. Uh, This is where you're you're loving each other. You're there for each other. It could be watching a movie. It could be watching the news. But don't stop dating. The next thing, this is number two. So the first thing is time. The second thing is love languages. I'm sure you all have heard this before. Um, A guy named Gary Chapman in 1992 wrote a book that sold about 8,000 copies. And uh, since then, it sold several hundred thousand copies. Um, and basically, he said that from his work, he discovered there were five unique love languages that couples speak. So when I work with couples, I always go through as part of my protocol, the love languages. Uh, this to me is, um, let me go over these real quick. This to me is essential that we learn what our partner's love language is and we learn to speak that love language well. The five love languages are quality time, acts of service, words of affirmation, physical touch and gifts. If I were to go to my wife, as an example, and I were to say, If I say that, what do you think she's going to say back to me? She's going to call Pastor Mac and ask for an exorcism or something like that, right? (laughs) So she doesn't know what I said. What I said was from my heart and what I said was true, but she doesn't understand the language that I spoke. What I said was, and it won't translate exactly, but dear girl, that's a term of endearment, from the time that I met you, you've been in my heart. Every time that I see you, my eyes light up like the stars of heaven. I love you with everything I have. You are my Petrus. Petrus comes from Matthew 16. So the mindset behind this is that we have to learn each other's language. The first one, and I'll go over these and give some examples, but the first one that I'd mentioned was quality time. That's really close physical proximity to one another. It usually means undivided attention. For many people, it means no phones, no kids, although some people want their kids there. I have some clients who definitely don't want their kids there. Uh, No interruptions. A lot of the couples that I work with, they want food. They may want a glass of wine. They may want something like that. Um, they, a lot of them want face-to-face contact where they're sitting there looking at each other and others don't want to look at each other. They want to watch something together. They want to be focused on something together. I had a, I had a couple early on when I first started counseling and the husband got up early in the morning on a Saturday and he went out and he cut the grass and he edged the yard and he weeded it and trimmed the shrubs. Then he went inside and he emptied the dishwasher, cleaned up the kitchen, went out got the oil changed, picked up his wife's medication, came back to the house, took a shower, sat down on the sofa about 4 p.m. now. Wife looked at him and said, you don't even love me, do you? And he was looking at her like, what are you talking about? That's all I've been doing today is loving you. His, his love language was acts of service. And so that's the love language that spoke love to him, and that's the language that he spoke to her. But her love language is quality time. But he didn't spend time with her. Not only was it not quality, it wasn't time at all. And so she felt unloved and he felt unappreciated. 
And so they could then go off and tell their friends how unloving their partner is, how unappreciative their partner is. When really the bottom line of this was he was trying to love her. And she wanted to be loved by him, but they weren't speaking the same language. The second love language is acts of service. Um, This is things like doing the laundry, emptying the dishwasher, picking up your dirty socks, cleaning out the sink, taking out the garbage, filling up the car with gas, getting the oil changed, making the bed, anything like that. When we first moved back to Alabama, which was about two and a half years ago from Georgia, um, there was a morning, and again, I got up at 5 a.m., and I was going to do my quiet time, and I went into the restroom, and I realized that there was no toilet paper on the roll of toilet paper. And I don't even need toilet paper at 5 a.m. I just noticed that it wasn't there, and I knew that my wife had done that. And usually it's my wife and my older daughter who do that. And so as I saw that, the thought came to mind, they did that on purpose. They know that I'm going to be the one to change it, even though I don't need that right now. And all of a sudden, I got very, very upset. The heart of of my feelings, my frustration was that there was an act of service that could have been done and wasn't. It was left for me to do. Feel not appreciated again. So I walk out on my way to spend time with the Lord, and I open the door to the bathroom, and there's my wife lying in the bed asleep with my little baby boy next to her. He'd been sick all night. She'd been taking care of him, nursing him, doing things that I can't do. Boy, did I feel like a fool. She showed me love. She showed me love by doing something for my child who I love that I couldn't do for him. That's an act of service. The third one is words of affirmation. These are words that affirm your spouse, uh, your spouse's value and your spouse's worth. Who they are, what they know, and what they do. I would say in the past that, that I didn't care about this. And then I took the love language test. And actually, this is my number one love language. And I thought, well, how can that be? I really don't care what people think about me. You know, when I started to think about it, when my father tells me, I'm proud of you, son, that means something to me. When my wife says, I love you, you're a good husband, you're a good father, that means something to me. My wife engraved in my my wedding ring, which I haven't taken off since the day we got married, something that means so much to me that I broke down. I said, I don't deserve that. That's too much for me. Words of affirmation mean something to me. I think that is something that is so easy, and yet we forget to do that so often. The next one is physical touch. Uh, My focus here is on non-sexual touch, although sexual touch is good too between a husband and a wife. This is holding hands, hugging, cuddling, foot rubs, back rubs, scratching the back, etc. This is, this is also something for me that, that speaks a lot of love. When I first started counseling and I was over at Alabama Baptist Children's Home, I was at Pathways Counseling, and I found myself in these counseling sessions that, I mean, I was engaged. The problem was when I came home at the end of the day, I couldn't disengage. So I'd be sitting at the dinner table and I was still dealing with, in my mind, the couple that was going to get divorced, the a veteran who's going to commit suicide. And my wife would reach over and squeeze my hand and say, where are you? Physically present in my kitchen, mentally, emotionally present at work. Yet my wife could touch me and pull me back into our kitchen to our table. Physical touch is powerful. The next one is gifts. And a lot of people score low on this. I've actually had some people score 10s on this. Um, But this is anything from diamond rings to donuts, mobile homes to professional massages, a pedicure, a prize from a Cracker Jack box. 
bouquet of flowers or somebody planting a flower bush in the yard. Uh, it's not so much the amount that it costs, but what it means. It means I was thinking about you. Gift certificates are good too. <laughs> my, my little sister, she, uh, she travels a lot and she would go all over the world. And when she would, um, anytime she would come to our house, if she'd been to Egypt or she traveled a lot internationally, when she would come, she always brings a gift. And it's pretty clear to us, we know that, that my little sister, that her primary love language is gifts. And it seems very shallow, but that's the way that she understands love. And again, it's not a $500 gift. It could be a 50-cent gift, but it says, when I was there, I thought of you, I bought this, and I want you to have it. You mean something to me. Okay. Our love language is a biblical concept. 1 John 3.18 says, Do not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And the word for deed, the Greek word is ergo, actions, works, behavior. Uh, Romans 5.8, and I bring this up quite a bit with my clients, that in the Old Testament, God said through the prophets, I love you, I love you, I love you. He sent manna. He turned the bitter water into sweet water. He brought down the walls of Jericho. He rescued Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. He did so many things to show his love. And all those things were ignored. They weren't heard. So God demonstrated his love for us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. To me, that is so biblical. That is the Bible itself. That is the gospel, the good news, is that God manifested his love in the flesh of Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death on the cross, and by the grace of God the Father, he didn't stay there. He rose again. Are you with me? You feel that. So when I go through these love languages, I, I fall back on the example set by God the Father. Luke 7, 22, when John the Baptist is taken into captivity, uh, he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, they ask him, they say, are you the one or should we wait for another? And he says, you go tell John everything you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. This is God living out his love for us. He healed, he fed, he saved. The next one, after love language, so the first one is time, the three sacred hours, dating. The second one that I went through is love languages. The third thing to help us cultivate our marriage is discovering each other's emotional needs. When I was in the military, one of the main things that we would study before we went into a combat zone was the key terrain. Back in the olden days, when everybody wore red uniforms or blue uniforms, it didn't really matter as much, but the high ground was still important. Today, when we go over there, it's not about the mountaintops and the hilltops, although we take that into account. The whole, the whole focus is on human terrain, the hearts and minds of the people. The counterinsurgency is the enemy doesn't wear a red uniform. They don't wear a blue uniform. They come to us as farmers with suicide vests strapped around them. They look like farmers except for the Kalashnikovs and weapons that they use. So in order to fight the enemy, we have to win the hearts and the minds of the people. That is the key terrain. When I look at emotional needs and my marriage counseling, this to me is the key terrain. If you really want to make a difference and you really want to fortify your marriage, you win the key terrain. And how do you do that? You find out what your spouse's emotional needs are and you meet them. 
I read a book when I was doing my field work at, at Pathways, and it was called His Knees, Her Knees, Building an Affair-Proof Marriage. And the name caught my attention, obviously, as a marriage counselor. It's by Willard Harley, written in 2011. And he basically said that there are 10 emotional needs that everybody has, one to some extent of, of these needs. And uh, those needs are honesty and openness, affection, intimate conversation, recreational companionship, sexual fulfillment, physical attractiveness, admiration, domestic support, family commitment, financial support. So when I work with the couples, I list those needs and I ask them to choose those needs and then to rank those needs. Which ones do they feel are greatest in their life? And then I ask them to define what that need means to them. And then I ask them for specific ways that their spouse can meet that need. How will you know if your need for recreational companionship is met? Once they give me that information, we set up a system to where they check in on that because consistency is a big part of this. They check in on that every week. In my time counseling, though, these 10 needs were limited. I found a lot of clients coming to me saying, well, I've actually got needs that aren't on that list. I said, okay, well, tell me what your need is. We'll add it to that list. Some of the other needs that I heard them share were spiritual leadership, intelligence. I want an intelligent spouse. Respect. Consideration. I thought those were the same thing, but apparently they're not. Humor, egalitarianism, which is like equality. Independence, privacy, you got to be a little bit careful with those. Consistency, reliability, couple solidarity, parental cohesion. These were other needs that they had. And again, with these needs, I would ask them to define and ask them to tell me how they will know that need is being met. When I was in the military still staying on these emotional needs. I, had, I lived about two kilometers off the base, 100, 150 Afghan army and police lived with me, and I had a couple of brave soldiers who were with me too. And I would make contact with all the different district centers and all the different troops that were out in the, the outskirts of the province. And I was in Ghazni province, which was in regional commandees for part of my time. One night I got a call on the radio from a district center out in a place called Ajiristan. And they said, we're, we're being overrun by the Taliban. They're going to take over the district center. We need help right now. So I called Bagram Air Force Base, and I said, we need to get combat air support over there now. The district center's being overrun. And they said, okay, where are they? I said, well, they're in the district center. Here's the grid. Yeah, but where are the enemy? So I called back to the district center. Where are they coming from? They said, well, they're coming from Kui Safed, Kui this and that. And I said, okay, what's the grid? Well, they don't know grids. They just know mountains. They know what the names of those mountains are. The problem was that their map and my map and the map that they had in Bagram were different. So what actually happened, what ultimately happened, was that the district center was overrun. And the Taliban planted their, their flag in regional command east. And that was somewhat shameful for the U.S. military, but we didn't know how to communicate with them. We didn't know how to send them support. So about three, four weeks later, we did an operation. We went back and we retook the district center. And the first thing that we did when we got there, after doing a mine sweep and bringing EOD in, was we went up on the rooftop. I took out my map. I took out their map. And we put the two together. And I said, what do you call that mountain right there? Whatever it was. Okay, that's going to be Red Mountain. That's going to be Blue Mountain. That's going to be White Mountain. That's going to be Red Pass, Blue Pass, White Pass. I gave them their map. I took my map and I told them, you teach this to everybody in your district center so you know what these mountains are called, what these paths are called. 
The next time the Taliban came in there, they called me. They said, we're being attacked from Red Mountain. I look on my map where, where Red Mountain is. I call into Bagram, Whiskey Bravo, 453, whatever it was, and they can, they can drop heat on that location. Because what I did was I made, I made a language that we could both communicate in. I took what they knew and what we knew and what we needed from them, and I put it together. And that, to me, is the same thing as emotional needs. When I find out what your emotional needs are, I find a way to understand that, to translate that and communicate that to your spouse, and then they know what you need when, when you're asking for help. Learn the rules, number four. So we've got, first one was time. The second one was learning your spouse's love language. The third one is finding out what your spouse's emotional needs are. Number four is learn the rules. I share this a good bit, and this kind of falls on with the love languages and with the emotional needs. Um, When my daughter was about 10 years old, uh, she came downstairs one day. We had sent her up to clean up her room, and she came downstairs with two massive garbage bags. And the garbage bags were full of pink stuff. So up to that point, my, my daughter didn't like it unless it was pink or sparkly or princessy. And all of a sudden, she's got two garbage bags full of pink stuff. My wife and I are looking at each other like, what in the world's going on? So, okay, we got that. So she brings down these two massive garbage bags of, of pink stuff. About a week or so later, I was sitting at the kitchen table with my daughter, and she did something. I said, you are so cute. She said, don't call me that. Okay, first of all, don't tell me not to call you that. You can ask nicely for me not to call you that, but why don't you want me to call you that? And she said, I don't know. And I said, well, come on, think about it. For some reason, I'm a counselor, that makes you upset. You don't want me to call you cute, why not? She said, I don't know. I said, okay, I won't call you cute anymore. I'll call you adorable. She said, please don't call me that. I said, why not? I don't know. I said, okay, I'm a counselor. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. But I think I know why you don't want me to call you cute and don't want me to call you adorable. Why? Well, I think you want to be seen as a young lady now, not as a little girl anymore. When you were a little girl, it was okay for me to call you cute. You liked that. You would smile. It would make you feel good. When I would say you're adorable, it made you happy. You don't want me to call you that anymore because you don't like that. You're growing up. So if I know that and I've learned the rule, I don't have to make the mistake of calling you every single name that sounds like cute. I learned the rule, and now I know that I'm not going to call you cute. I'm not going to call you adorable. I'm not going to call you precious. I'm not going to call you princess, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, not only did I learn what not to call you, I've got a pretty good idea what I can say to you. Is it okay if I tell you you look pretty today? Yes. You can tell me I look pretty. So I learned the rule. With husbands and wives, couples that I work with, one of the big things is learning the rule. If you learn something that works, it's not just one thing. You can take that and you can generalize that to many different things. If you find out what your spouse's love language is, what your spouse's emotional needs are, you can get creative with that. You need to get creative with that. I had a couple that I worked with, and the husband and the the wife had been in a big argument, and the husband had said some things out of desperation in the argument that actually filled the wife's love tank. She loved it. She grabbed onto it, but she didn't tell him about it. So the next time they were in counseling with me, the husband said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And the wife said, yeah, you do. He said, what? You said it the other night. What did I say the other night? And she told him, and I wrote it down. 
And so then the husband looked at me and said, so what do I do? Just say that over and over and over again. He's not very creative, right? What do I do? Just say that over and over and over again? I said, no. If you know what that is, you learn the rule, you find a thousand different ways to say that same thing. When you run out of ways to say it, you paint it, you write it in poetry, you dance it, you do whatever you can do to communicate that to her. You matter to me, you're important to me. Learn the rules. Okay. And then on top of that one, the the getting creative. I've had a lot of couples when it comes down to, again, physical touch, whatever that is, you do the things that are going to be creative and they're going to, if you find out what it is, my wife feels like she doesn't matter to me. Make her matter. Do everything that you can to cultivate that feeling in her life. I talked earlier about Elijah at Mount Carmel, about what happened afterwards. I went out to hear the, the still small voice of God. And what I didn't say was what happened on Mount Carmel. And I think most people are familiar with the story, but, uh, King Ahab was an evil king in Israel, and Elijah had gone to him and said, this is what's going to happen. It's not going to rain for three and a half years. And then from there, Elijah went out and he proceeded to pray, as we read in James, that it would not rain for three and a half years. God said, you go to the brook of Kareth, and I will feed you with the ravens, and you will drink from the brook. So he went there, but what happens in a drought? The brook dried up. So then Elijah went to Zarephath. He stayed in Zarephath with a widow and her son, and the son died, and by the grace of God, he was raised again through Elijah. And after three and a half years, after all all these trials, all this tribulation, Elijah went back to King Ahab, and he said, meet me up on Mount Carmel. So they went up on Mount Carmel. He said, you bring all the prophets of Baal, you bring them up there, and we're going to have a showdown. So they went up there, and he said, this is what's going to happen. You're going to try to light your sacrifice and then I'm going to light mine. So they tried. They spent the whole day dancing, cutting, doing everything they could do to get their sacrifice to light, praying to their gods. Elijah sat there, and obviously there was, if you remember the story, some mockery, some joking. And then Elijah said, okay, my turn. He rebuilt the altar of God. He rebuilt it. He used the 12 stones, rebuilt the altar, cut up the ox, put it on top of the altar, and then he knelt down before God and he prayed, 1 Kings 18, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that thou, O Lord, our God, and that thou hast turned their hearts back again. The next verse says that the fire of the Lord fell, it consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, it licked up the water in the trench around the altar because they had dumped buckets of water on top of that. And when the people saw this, It says, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. The couples that I work with, I I talk to them about trying to build a whatever it takes marriage. I talk to them about trying to build a Mount Carmel marriage. And when people see them, they see the way the husband loves the wife, the way the, the wife loves the husband, that they too will say, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. If Jesus loves me the way that husband loves that wife, I want to know Jesus. If Jesus loves me and was willing to submit himself, like it talks about in Philippians 2, the way that wife submits to that husband and loves that husband, I want to know Jesus. One of the greatest things I believe about cultivating your marriage is not just that your needs will be met, that your love language will be spoken, that you'll be by worldly standards happier, but that you will glorify God and bear fruit. And in living that, you will share the gospel with others.
All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. I thank you for all these brothers and sisters in Christ who are here tonight. Father, I pray that you will bless them. I pray that you will bless their relationships. For those who are married, that you will bless their marriages, that you will consecrate them, that they will be like Mount Carmel marriages, that people will see them and see the way that they love their spouse and that they will turn their eyes to you and fix their eyes on you, the author and perfecter of faith, that you will be glorified and honored and praised. Lord, I pray that they will continue to sacrifice and do everything that is required to cultivate and protect their marriage. I thank you for this time together. I pray that you will bless it, that you'll glorify yourself through it. All these things I pray to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.